through 25 seasons. Hey! 4,561 episodes. I believe the Oprah Winfrey Show was one of the greatest classrooms in the world. I really never thought of it that way. The aha moments, the breakthroughs, the connections, the occasional ugly cry. I miss him so terribly. I miss him every single minute. The LOLs, the moments that mattered, the eye-opening life lessons. Never allow them to take you somewhere else. I'm bringing them back. It's time to open the vault. I've personally chosen these classic episodes to share with you again. Every single person you ever will meet shares that common desire. They want to know, do you see me? Do you hear me? Does what I say mean anything to you? You are listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. Most of us get sad, depressed when things get too tough, and it's considered a normal reaction. Today, we're going to talk about what's considered the abnormal response to life's problems, what my first guest calls super joy. In fact, that's the title of Dr. Paul Pearsall's book. It's called Super Joy. He says that modern psychology has really done us a disservice by encouraging us to adapt and handle stress, to work hard, achieve our goals. What's missing, he says, is our ability to experience just plain, unadulterated joy about life. My next guest has what has to be one of the simplest outlooks on life that any grown man could have. His book is called All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Robert Fulcom says all this talk about the examine life and self-actualization might be fine for some folks, but all he really needs to know he learned in kindergarten. My next guest put the lessons he's learned about getting the most out of life in a book called The Power in you. We know him from his famous Amos chocolate chip cookies, and now Wally Amos reveals the personal struggles that he's endured and the attitudes that helped him find inner strength. Welcome all of my guests. Hello. So I think what I'll do, I'll take each book at a time. One, two, three, three seconds, and then we'll all talk, okay? Oh, yeah. sure. uh, first of all, Super Joy is about us not being able to, or adjusting to stress in a way that we should, rather than doing what psychologists have told us over the years, is normal. Right, and, and working with patients for 17 years, we learned something very early, that psychology and psychiatry has focused on the sick, or the absence of symptoms. It hasn't focused on those people who celebrated every day, who were very, very healthy. We learned that being normal is very dangerous to your health. <laughs> Very dangerous to your health. You're safe. You're I passed safe. a man on, on the road the other day, and he's driving this big Mercedes car with a motivational tapes probably playing in his ear, talking on his car phone, probably on the way to a meditation class <laughs> to learn to relax so he could work harder the next day. And he's commended for this. So what therapists have become, at least in my estimation and in, in our research, is really like lifeguards by a big river. People fall in this river. They almost drown. We pluck them out, resuscitate them, and throw them back in. We don't ask, maybe that river's running too fast. Maybe there's something more to life than we're doing right now. So you studied people who have the, the joy response naturally, and they're about, what, 20% of the population? About 20%. You see, for example, if you, if you go to a picnic and you eat bad food, spoiled potato salad, 80% of the people get sick. But 20% of those people tend to not get sick. Why? I like to study those people. Why don't they? <laughs> and the reason I started to look at those healthy people who don't seem to, to jog but stay healthy they don't eat fiber till they turn into a brick. They, they <laughs> stay healthy anyway. And what it was, was very obvious. They had broken stress addiction. They weren't addicted to that stress anymore. Mm. They were free. And what really drove the message home 
was the first woman I interviewed 17 years ago, a survivor of the Holocaust. And I saw her in the hospital with a very non-serious illness. And she was smiling, and they wanted her out of the hospital because she kept singing and laughing and bothering all of the rest of the patients. <laughs> so I went to see her, and she had the tattoo on her wrist, that terrible tattoo. And I said, oh, my word, look at that. And she said, you like my birthmark? <laughs> I said, that's a death mark, isn't it? She said, the day they stamped that on me, I knew they weren't going to kill me. Now, why did she have that was my interest in writing Superjoy. I wanted to know why some people survive anyway. Why can they be so abnormal? Why aren't they, quotes, well-adjusted? Why are they weird enough, like some of the people here and my esteemed colleagues, to break away from this system? And that's what they've done. And so you talk about that, too, in All I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, Robert. When you, you talk about the Good Samaritan story and how that affected the guy who, who, who was stopped by the Good Samaritan. Can you tell us about that? Well, absolutely. The, the bottom line of this whole discussion has to do with the fact that whatever it is that we're all looking for, it is not something that you have to go out there and get. It is something that you have and something that you give away. And in the context of that, your life is meaningful. And that's the biggest distinction I find between the people who are suffering from stress and those who are not. You, you're talking about the Jewish story of the Holocaust. Once upon a time, I was working as a cowboy in a dude ranch. And the night manager of this was a guy who'd been through Auschwitz. And I was complaining terribly, bitterly about the fact that for three days in a row we'd had weenies and sauerkraut for lunch, and I was going to quit. <laughs> yes. And he said, listen to me. He says, you break your neck, you got a problem. You go to Auschwitz, you got a problem. All the rest is inconvenience. You've got to figure out the difference between inconvenience and problems. Well, yeah, and the point of the Good Samaritan story, did the man who was helped by the Good Samaritan was he grateful that he was helped, or did he complain about all the other people who passed and did not help him? Well, we've been puzzling that one out for a long yeah. time. And, it, and, you, and you see the answer to that in terms of what you project onto it rather than what the story actually tells you. It's very interesting you're talking about Auschwitz because I went to see Mississippi Burning. I went, went to see it with, with some friends who came out saying, ah, oh, this makes me really hate white people. And I said, you know, it does the exact opposite to me. I, I look at that film and I look at our history as black people in this country and I think of what other black people have sacrificed in order for me to be where I am and I just want to make what I have better so that their legacy would not be a, a legacy lived in vain instead of carrying the bitterness around. I guess I'm one of those super joy people. You're you know? weird. Yeah. <laughs> weird. So I don't look at it and say, oh God, I don't look at it and say, this makes me mad. I look at it and say, well, look at what, what people have sacrificed me and I can do so much more. To have so much more, you know. Well, but the reason for cynicism is uh, there's lots of reasons for cynicism. The only trouble is that it doesn't help. It doesn't help at all. Isn't the bottom line, though, love, Wally? Absolutely. Isn't the bottom line? Absolutely. I don't care what the question is. Love is the answer. Yeah. Loving yourself first, because if you don't have love for yourself, then you can't give it to others, you know. And, and that's, that's a, a major problem, I think, is, is, is low self-esteem, lack of love, for oneself, so we're projecting all of these negative images out onto the world. Uh, but you know, we hear this all the time. If we could help people to learn to love themselves, we could solve the world's problems. I mean, but I hear this all the time. It's all about <coughs> loving yourself. Where do you begin to love yourself? I mean, how do you start? What do you do? Well, I think you have to start right where you are. And all I know is, you know, the process that I went through, and I don't necessarily have a step-by-step -step uh -huh. guideline to help people get through it. But I know that for a long time, I really didn't like myself. I was just a little skinny black kid that grew up in Tallahassee, Florida. And everywhere I looked, you know, I was not seeing any positive role models. So for a long time, I had 
an inferiority complex, you know. I mean, we now call it low self-esteem, but in those days it was an inferiority complex. And very gradually, though, I began to think. You know, I mean, you have to begin to think. You have to begin to analyze what's happening with you, what kind of reactions you're getting uh, in life, and you have to begin to see the correlation between your actions and the results that you're getting. Uh, and I think as you do that, you begin to see things about yourself that you like, you know, and you, and you begin to see how you can enhance those areas in your life and just expand on them. Do you all not think that most of us are raised, and I know all of our parents tried to do the best they could, I don't know if this is true if you, you're white, because I never was white before. Uh, <laughs> but what Wally said is true. I wasn't true. either. I mean, when, when you were, I mean, I was talking about the, this movie. It's very difficult to have been raised at, at our time. Mm -hmm. You were raised a little earlier than uh, me. A little earlier. <laughs> and not come, not come out with some feelings of low self-esteem, just because there were not people who looked like you on television. There were no role models that looked like you. And also, depending on the shading of your, of your skin. I mean, you were a little brown. Yes, I was very yeah, brown. Very brown. <laughs> and, so, and, so, and so it's entirely <laughs> different. And so to come out and not feel badly about yourself, if you can do that, I mean, it's almost Well, obviously it is possible because, uh -huh. you know, here I am. I did that, and I was raised in Tallahassee, Florida at the height of segregation. And, and, and I mean, I don't have any bitterness. I don't have any anger because, as Bob says, you know, what good is it going to do? And that's living in the past, you see? The past can only hurt you if you allow it, if you bring it into your present. So you can let that go and you can change your belief system and you can be positive, you can be a loving person today if you choose to. What did we actually learn in kindergarten? This is on page six. All I really need to know about how to live and what to do and how to be, I learned in kindergarten. Wisdom was not at the top of the graduate school mountain, but there in the sand pile at Sunday school, these are the things I learned. Do you remember the list? No. Okay. <laughs> Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. <laughs> Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Live a balanced life. Learn some and think some and draw and paint and sing and dance and play and work every day some. Take a nap every afternoon. When you go out into the world, watch out for traffic. Hold hands and stick together. Be aware of wonder. Remember the little seed in the styrofoam cup. The roots go down and the plant goes up and nobody really knows how or why, but we are all like that. Goldfish and hamsters and white mice and even the little seed in the styrofoam cup, they all die. So do we. Hmm. And then remember the Dick and Jane books. And the first word you learn, the biggest word of all? Look. Look. <laughs> and that's about it. That covers it. Covers it all. <laughs> or when you do all those things, then you can worry about whatever else there is left over. But that's okay for starters. Well, let me ask you this. There are people, we're going to talk to people in the audience, who believe that life is just unfair. Mm. I pose this question to all of you. Is it? Yes. Sure. Sure. No. It's absolutely unfair. No. Sometimes. Oh, come on. No. We got we to get you outvoted. No. Two to life, three. Life, well, we got to be controversial. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> life is not unfair. Okay. No. Life is whatever you make it. Okay. That's uh, what I think. But yeah. What do you think, Paul? The one predictor of whether or not our patients got better when serious illness struck was their ability to delude themselves, to believe. Whether their belief was true or not, they had a strong belief system. My patient said to me, you know, Dr. Pearsall, life is random. I don't know what really is going to happen. I don't understand the whole system. But I believe anyway. I know what I'm going to do if I can just hold my hand on this tumor. I think I can shrink it. 
That's not true by what we know by science. She believed it. If there's anything profound that I've discovered anyway, is that we create our own world by our perceptions. The world itself, the facts that none of us understand on the stage, are indeed random and beyond most of our comprehension. But I, what really matters is our belief. Okay. Do you not believe, because I've had some serious revelations uh, lately, and I've, I've asked God to give me love. I, and I get everything I ask for, so I know I'm going to get it. Um, but, but real love, I mean, I'm not just talking about the Stedman kind. I'm talking about the real <laughs> I'm talking about, you know, being able to, yes. to have true love in your heart for other people so when all these people say bad things about you, you can deal with it. Because what I've learned is that it doesn't take anything to love my staff and the people that are close to me I care about. The love really gets shown when people who really are snits, you can let to that out. to love them anyway. Okay. Now, this is what I have just discovered recently, and it's just, it's such a simple thing, that everything that happens in our lives is to bring you closer to love. Everything that happens. Now, do you not, you don't believe that? I agree with that, only to the extent, though, that we have to understand that love is not a feeling. This may be controversial, but as a psychologist, here's what we always say. This sells books. Love everybody, <laughs> communicate better, understand and do your own thing. My patients say, what the devil is my thing? How do you love your kid when they just wrecked everything in the house? Isn't there anybody here who once said something to their kid that they're terribly embarrassed about? Like, if you do it again, I'll kill you. <laughs> love is a behavior, is not a feeling. It is not some kind of thing that happens to you like a virus that overtakes you. It is being able to say to that kid who just drank your best perfume, I love you anyway. So the problem that I deal with is getting people to behave lovingly, not wait for this magical love that will come to them so they can treat everybody lovingly. But it's also loving the person. I mean, differentiating between your actions and, and the individual. I can, I can love you, but I don't love you if you drink my perfume. I don't, I don't, I don't love that act that, that, that uh -huh. you perform. But, but beyond that, there is a, there is a you that is so fantastic and that is so wonderful and that's what I need to focus on, that, that part of you. But you have to do it. My point is that all yeah, sounds oh, no, good. No, you have to do it. But it's very hard when my kid has just ruined everything to go in there and say, come here, I love you anyway. I don't like the fact that you put the cat in the microwave oven, but I do love you anyway. I've got to take my arms and put them around that kid and act lovingly. Okay, Remember but doesn't that behavior, though, I'm talking about the core bottom, 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 bottom line, that behavior, your ability to act lovingly to your child who's put your cat in the oven, starts with you making a decision yes. to love. Does yes. it not start? That's what I think we Absolutely. agree on. Absolutely. Love, as is all joy, and if there's a message in these three books, is this is a choice you make. It is not something that happens to That's you. That's what right. I want. Right. And it so is a conscious if, choice. So yes. if it's a choice, your decision to love or not love, and everything you do in life is either about making love or making war, if that is the truth, then how is life unfair? Don't you get exactly what you deserve? No. Don't you get what you put out? No, because if we say that, do you understand that if something terrible happens to me, then what I start to say is, what have I done? I've got a disease and I deserve this and I must have done so. I want to say something right now. A lot of disease is random, <clears throat> bad luck, genetics. Listen, if your parents didn't have children, you won't either. You understand what I mean? <laughs> Write this down. That's profound. I know. But you follow what, it, what we've started to do is blame people that you haven't loved enough, you haven't been kind yes. enough. I went and saw a patient the other day who was dying. And she said, my imagery failed. I didn't get able to think of the sharks that ate the... I said, you did well. People die. 
appreciate life. Life is random. You don't deserve this, doggone it. We do our best after all. That's what super joy is. Super joy is just doing your best, making a choice to live joyfully. But back to what you're saying in super joy, there are some people who take that illness and get to be better people as a result of that illness. Absolutely. And therefore, that illness served a great purpose in their life because yes. it made them love themselves and love everybody else. You know what and I'm saying? that's what Wally and these guys are saying, that, that they made a choice to use that. As that woman in the concentration camp did, they're not going to hold me in. Well, it's not just that they're using that illness. You'd find those same people, whatever happens to them, yes. they right. figure out how to put it to work for them and for those who are around them rather than feel like something happens to them yes. because of it. Don't you think that... I don't know if all of you believe in God, but that the yes. grace of God or, or the love of God is constant. Do we agree with that? Yes. yes. That the love of God is constant. So if the love of God is constant, doesn't that mean that God is not here to destroy or to punish or <clears throat> to cause you to struggle? Do you agree with that? Agree with that. I agree with that. I remember the statement from this woman I mentioned in the concentration camp. She said, this ain't God's camp. Right. Okay. God didn't do this, but I have a control over this. I can use God's love to survive this system. All right, so does that mean that people then block themselves from the grace or the love? Yes, I think so. It's their perception of God's love that makes the difference, yeah. Yeah. you know? Hi, Oprah. Hi. When you were talking about loving each other, you're talking about family and people close to you and your patients, and you know, there's a camaraderie there. But how do you keep loving and sharing and trying to be fair with people when people use that and, you know, Basically, I see people, you know, the older I get, I think people are rotten. I do. Well, that's what the, the argument was up here. Maybe we all three can comment. Some people really behave in very inappropriate, mean, angry, destructive ways. I don't want to give this idea that we're looking through at, at the world through rose-colored glasses and distorting that. That's not what the joy response is. The joy response is a biochemical reflex. happens in the body when you don't allow that negative to affect you because you make a choice. This person cut me out in traffic. You can follow them for four miles, chase them, <laughs> yell at them, scream at them, make vulgar gestures. Who you're hurting is you. That doesn't bother them. They do this all the time. They have other problems. But I know what she's saying. I know what she's saying. You, you give of yourself to somebody. You share yourself. You have all the love. You got <clears> to be. And then they take advantage of you because well, those people mistake your kindness <clears throat> for weakness and they think you're stupid, right? Well, but that's exactly but I think you I'm have saying. to know who you are. When I give of myself or when I give whatever to someone, I don't give expecting them to respond the way I want them to. That is not what life is about. Giving, loving, as I speak of, is extending yourself unconditionally for the benefit of another human being. Whoever that human being is, Wherever, however they wish to, to use whatever it is you do it for yourself you so it them. doesn't matter what they do. Absolutely. I'm right. giving because it makes me feel good oh, to give. Well, in addition I, to that, let me, let me stick something in here. There's an assumption that the giving is always one-on-one. -on -one. And in yeah. fact, the giving needs to be to the entire outfit. We are always putting back in the pot. Absolutely. Sometimes what is given to us goes back in the pot to someone who's not going to give directly back to us. But there's that sense of contributing to the well-being of the group. Point, a point that hasn't been brought up here, too, is so, when that happens sometimes, if I may share this with you, if you give in to those people, they're not responding. You need to clean house. There are times in your life when the best things I've done is clean house. You know? yes. And you eliminate the people in your life who are not moving in the same direction and are not feeding yes. you 
what you need. That's, I mean, that's one of the greatest gifts as you can give yourself. As long as you yourself. try hard enough to fix that up. Yeah. I, I see a lot of people abort very quickly. Some people give up too soon. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want to clean house until it's really, really dirty. Well, I, mean, I mean, but you clean. You clean after you realize that these people are bringing me down and I've done everything I can and I've given of myself, but this person isn't going to help my life. You see right. what I'm saying? What, what, I'm, what I'm concerned about as a researcher purely, though, Oprah, is that understand something I think the three of us are trying to say. By acting lovingly, this is not just some kind of romantic hogwash. And it's not just positive thinking and looking no. at it, you know. Or communicating, <laughs> or yeah. I love you, not you are my no. one and only people <clears throat> in the deepest ocean. It's acts that show caring for the system, as you said. It's giving back to the system. However. What does that mean, giving back to the system? It means that system? what I do positively, it may not be aimed at that one man that day, but it goes into the pot. We are all connected. We are all related here. If one person in this audience today is touched by this, that matters a great deal. It doesn't matter that one woman may give me a dirty look and then I'm going to clean house, I'll never sit in front of you again. You understand the number one thing you can do for your own immune system is to do something altruistic to help. If you don't believe me, after the Oprah show is over, go out in traffic, find traffic, and wave people in. Give them a break. You'll feel really good. Now, if you're going to tell me, they didn't even thank me, the fool. I'll cut out the next person. This isn't love. This is purchase. That's bothering. Yeah. Sometimes I just think that, um, sure, I've been taken advantage of before, but I'm just hoping that sinks through the person that maybe I did leave a good impression on them and that maybe somehow they'll think back to it and maybe it'll somehow change them. Because to me, I mean, sure, things bring me down, but I always find a way to pick myself back up. Mm -hmm. I'll stay depressed for an hour, but I'll do five hours worth of, you know, window shopping or whatever, and I'm perked up. And then <laughs> I'm done. Or like when, when my parents tour. first got married, you know, the macaroni and cheese story where my dad would give my mom 14 bucks for two weeks grocery shopping. She would laugh until tears rolled down her cheeks. How can you do grocery shopping in 14, you know, with $14? But I know. think we all agree. What worries me most, if we get the message in this one-hour show that somehow depression is bad, we're in trouble. Well, on top of that, we're, the capacity that all of us have for being jerks is very clear. Yes. But we tend, <laughs> we tend to think that those people all have a capacity for jerks, and I have to tolerate it. What's yes. nice to know is you are also part of that jerk group at times. That's right. And that's okay. The line between good and evil, joy, positive and negative, doesn't run between us and them. It runs right down the middle of all of us. Mm -hmm. And once you get that straight, then you belong to the group rather right. than being an outsider dealing with But it. I also think it goes back to what, what Paul was saying earlier about choices. I mean, I know that I am not going to be loving all of the time, but I've made the decision to at least seek that in my life. Absolutely. And so that, that puts me at a better place than not even thinking hey. about it, I think. I think mean, the key thing, too, is, you know, we must really begin to take responsibility for our lives, for, for you know, for really things That's that That's the happen. bottom line. It really is. You're not a victim. One thing I don't understand in reference to life is because of the fact that things happen that we can't seem to find an answer for, mm -hmm. and it challenges your faith. Now, I had a twin sister who died three years ago, unexpectedly and everything, which was the cornerstone of my life. She was the one that when things went wrong, she always straightened me out and kept me on the true and narrow. A year after she passed, I buried her son. I worked for a company in the city of Chicago for 17 and a half <clears> years, but because of my position in reference to my union, I was terminated. Then my faith in my union, it didn't come out because of the fact the mishandling of my defense didn't help the situation either. Now, if it wasn't for my faith, and God, mm -hmm. I don't think that I would be standing here today. I think I would have probably leaped in Lake Michigan or found the highest building and jumped off. Mm -hmm. And there's no understanding as to why things happen. You know, why do they happen that way? Why do it seem to... Faith is not 
at least in my uh, estimation, faith is not believing that, that your expectation should be realized. Faith is not questioning God also. If you believe that God is the source of everything, that, that, that God knows all and, and directs all, then you don't question that. There are th questions that you will never have the answer to. What I have done is I've quit asking why. Because if I trust in God, if, if God is my source, is my father, is my where all, then whatever God does is all right with me. Who am I? God created me. Who am I to question my creator? My vision is so limited, it's so narrow. I mean, I, this much. So, so how do I know? But God knows, and everything happens for a reason, for a lesson, for a purpose. And I'm prepared to accept that. I don't quite that. understand when you say everything happens for a reason. I may not be questioning God. That, that to me would be stupid. But I'm questioning as to why is this happening. I, I find it very hard to believe that things just happen for the sake the, of happening. Let me jump in here a second because I disagree with you that everything has a purpose. I think that's part of the problem here. I once heard a physician say to a young woman whose child had drowned in a swimming pool, why did this happen to me? Why did my child die? as though there was some secret thing that everybody but her knew. And the physician said to her, which at the time I thought was rather cruel, because children cannot breathe underwater. Well, I... And I thought, oh, that's really harsh. He said, no, no, you are not exempt from the fundamental ways the universe works, and neither are you a target of it, nor are you to blame for it. But you have to understand the world in which you live. And if you walk in front of a train, it's not because God's trying to punish you. It's no, because people all. get killed when they stand in front of trains. But when that happens to you in your life, the way you react to it or don't react to it, the, choice, the choice you make, the choice you make and how I'm going to react to this, you can spend your life questioning it, you can be angry with the universe for the rest of your life, or you can choose to find love in other ways in, in, in your life. So how you react to it, you do have some control over, that's or do you choice. not no, believe that? That's the choice. I believe uh, that. Okay. Just so long as we allow people the luxury of doing what you did. Sometimes you have to ask why. Oh, Not sure. that you'll come up with the answer, but there are stages. Every patient that I've worked with will say, why me? I don't say you shouldn't ask that question. I think they should wrestle with that for a while. I think it's a fair thing because there's no justice to that that we understand. Yeah. Yes. Oprah, we just were talking about something I think is germane to this point. We, we were saying we do not stop and ask the question when wonderful things happen to us. We don't say, why did this happen to me? We, it's because we're good and just and we deserve this, right? <coughs> and it's the, it's the flip side of that. Things happen. Can you learn life lessons, though, from joyous things as well? I mean, if you get the lesson. Can you? Absolutely. But first, don't forget this point. We are addicted. Everyone is addicted. It's a mammalian trait. You leave your dogs eat, they'll eat up every bit of food that they've got in there. You're addicted to work, to stress, to sex, to food, to status, to activities. You are also potentially addicted to joy. But we've begun to lose that reflex. Most of you here will leave this show and run. And go and say, I'm going to beat the crowd, I can get my car, I'm going to go to the shopping center, look out, I'm on my way, I can get home, I can get this done. If I can get home, I can see myself on Oprah on the VCR, I'll see if I stood up, how did I look? <laughs> After this nice talk about peace and everything else, you'll be out into that. We, you've, the only way you can break that is, as Oprah's trying to point out, it is a choice you make that I'm not going to allow that stress addiction, that carousel of stressed in the morning. How did you get up this morning? Did you get up like the how to do it books say? Good morning, children. Let's meditate. Or did you say, get up, where are your socks? Get out of here. That's real life. Do you believe we have control over our lives? Do we have control over our lives? 
I think that I have control over my life because my, by my thoughts, uh, by the choices that I make, and the results that I have in my life directly relate to the choices that I've made in my life. And I've, I mean, I, I am so conscious, and so I, 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 believe, I believe that. Mm -hmm. so that's Robert? not a question you can answer yes or no. There are things that happen to you that have nothing to do with you. And you can't either take the blame for it or against it. Things happen. But you know what I have discovered that, you know, you all have written all these super joy and all I need to learn, I know, uh, and the all I need to know learning kindergarten, the power in you. Mm -hmm. Every single thing that is written in your books, and I have read everything in all three of these books, is in the Bible. Yes. Every single thing you say is already fundamentally in the Bible. You know, almost all, let me interrupt you, okay. all, all, almost all the good questions have been asked for a long, long time, and almost all the good answers. Yes. You can go back to St. Paul who said, I do what I would not do, and I don't do what I, I would do, and I don't understand why. Or you talk about stress, there was a time, if you accept the old metaphor, that there's a guy named Adam and a guy named Eve, and they were in paradise, and it was wonderful. And the snake came along and said, hey, try this. You want this? And for the sake of trying that, God said, okay, suckers, you go out there and you work by the sweat of your brow, and it's going to be work, and work is stressful. The word stress has become a very troubling yes. thing. Yes. If you are hungry and you can't have anything to eat, that's appropriate stress because you are under concern about where you're going to eat, where you're going to sleep tonight. There is appropriate and inappropriate stress, and it's the inappropriate thing we're talking about. It's that distinction between problems and inconveniences. And it's the old business where most of us in, our, in this part of our existence in the 20th century, we go to the doctor and say, it hurts when I do this. And the doctor keeps saying, well, don't do that. <laughs> well, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a Bible passage. Actually, it's my very favorite one, Psalms 37.4. It says, delight thyself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, there are a lot of people who believe, as, as Wally was saying earlier, their, their view of God is so small and their vision is so limited that, you know, God is sort of in a box. But to me, God is love, which means everything that is loving and joyful. And if you seek those things, if, that, if you fundamentally seek joy and peace and love in your life in ways, and I'm not just talking about in some altruistic form, if you seek that all these other material things. It's like when you started your first cookie company, mm. just trying to make a living because yeah. you like cookies, right, right. And then you end up being able to buy the kind of socks you're wearing here today. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> living, living the high, you know, living, living a very good life. So that if you seek the goodness, all the other things that you think you want will come to you, but that's what you have to seek. Do I, you was, know? I was amazed how blind I was as I finished I Super Joy. I took the Ten Commandments and compared them to Zen Buddhism, Eastern religion, modern psychology, cognitive therapy, and all the material. And I guess the one-liner I came up with is the ancients have stolen all our best ideas. <laughs> <laughs> you want well, to say what? You want to say what? Yes, sir. Sometimes, though, it's just really unfair all the way around the bottom line on it. You have your life in order. You know where you're going. You know what you're doing. You've got direction. Things are going just like you want them to go. And then all of a sudden, for some unforeseen reason, everything falls completely apart. And when it stays that way, you go back and you question, what did I do wrong at this point? I was living in New York out on Long Island. I was having a ball. Mm -hmm. Beautiful salary. Career was going where I wanted it to go. Friends were coming to see me. I was happy. Then all of a sudden, cancer came in and it said, this is it. And for the past 10 years, it's been one thing after the other, all the way through financial destruction, all the way through hurting 20 hours out of 24 of the day, not sleeping at night, wondering if I'm going to be able to get up and work, where does it become fair at that point? When you examine 
and when you check to see where did I go wrong, mm -hmm. and it has nothing to do with the amount of love that I generate, no, no. because I give constantly, I never stop giving, but I'm getting to the point right now, I think I'm a little tired. You didn't do anything wrong. We all will suffer. Trust me. We all will suffer. You didn't do anything wrong. Don't fall for this message in our society that you gave this love for nothing now because now you, you are going through pain and distress. That love is paying off big dividends. You have to understand again that we are not culpable for illness. We do not cause our own illness unless you said I intentionally went out and ran into the wall 10 times and broke my nose, now look what's happened to me. Life, as I said earlier in the show, is random, can be extremely cruel in our view of it in the short term, and the only way you can reduce some of the pain of our, with our patients who are in chronic pain is to get them away from that self-recrimination, self-blame, that questioning of 10 years of love and now I have 10 years of pain. Why is that? There will not be a fair answer. What? That is that when you get to the level where just like dealing with pain and you're asking yourself, you're saying, I don't deserve this, and you're saying to yourself, where did I go wrong? I've been through that and I never stopped giving a large, large degree of love. I do what? it now. It's never lessened. It's even gotten better because I think at some point the humility comes in. You become humble. You become so in touch with the God that you know and that you choose to really love and show how his love works between the other human beings you come in touch with. But when you're weighing it out on the scale and trying to balance that scale, you get to a point in time where you get so exhausted that you say it's just not worth it in the final analysis. And I mean, this can be over a long, long period of time. You can go through the suffering. You can go through all of the pain. You can love, you can give, you can reach out to people. And then the bottom line is when you weigh it. Well, what's the alternative? I don't have it. You wrote the books. <laughs> let, let, let me say something here that's, I think, is pretty critical. And I think I speak for all three of us. We would not want to deny that people suffer, that bad things happen to people that cause them pain and sorrow. We would not in the least way want to say that the reason that happens to you is because somehow you haven't done what we're saying or in our, in our books or you're not generating your own joy. The universe doesn't play those kinds of favorites. The reason people get burned is because they put their hands on hot stoves. It is not a judgment of the universe. All of us are liable to that. None of us are exempt. And I think the problem here is this with this word fair and unfair and just and unjust as though what happens to us is a continual judgment of our character and our attitudes and the way we live our lives. Those things are not necessarily connected. Sometimes yes, sometimes no, but not necessarily. I think people get not in life what they want, because a lot of people want a lot of things, VCRs and stuff, but you get exactly what, at the core of you, you expect you will get. Expect what you want. Yes, as long as we're careful again, because I see people listening to motivational tapes even when they're making love. And the idea now is that, uh, but do you hear the underlying message here? Uh, my life isn't going well, so I didn't expect enough. I've got to expect more. Sometimes things don't go well, even when you do what you just said. You can expect, you can hope, but joy really means acceptance. Ex Making right, a choice right. of flowing, not blaming yourself for saying, what's the newest motivational book? That's why I try to write a book for the first time that's a how to don't it, how to stop, not how to be magnificent and be the number one, my dream is this weekend, when the football games come on, you'll see some college students stand up and say, we're number 10 and proud of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Oprah, I'm here uh, today because I care. And if one person that is down in the dumps feels better, I've done what I came here to do. And the thing is, I'm 40 years old. I've had 40 years. My first 20, I grew up as the fat kid on the block. 
I was ridiculed, I was picked on. I survived that. Now in my last 20 years, Vietnam, best friend died in my arms. I come home from Vietnam, I joined the Chicago Police Department. I've seen numerous homicides, numerous tragedies. I happen to have to take a man's life. Just recently, I was chasing a man with a gun. I suffered a heart attack. I had open heart surgery, six bypasses. Last Christmas, my mother uh, became ill, was on a respirator. The next day, my brother becomes ill. He's in another hospital on a respirator with kidney failure. And so how have you chosen to react to all of these things? The thing I do is, number one, the Lord. He's the only way I survive. Number two, my family. Number three, my friends. Number four is my attitude. So if you're interested in, in what we've been talking about today, Paul Pearsall's book is called Super Joy. All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. That's Robert Fulcom's book. And Wally Famous Amos's book is The Power... Written in... with my son, Gregory Amos. Oh, God. that's right. Okay, I don't Gregory. want to forget that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, The Power in You. I thank you all for sharing yourself and your stories with us. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Oprah show, The Podcast. And I thank you for listening. <laughs>